0: Welcome to the One Sealed Letter podcast, where we explore the legacy of letter writing and bring this beautiful art form into the 21st century. I'm your host, Kate Collier, the voice and warm body behind this podcast, and Catherine Hastings and company, our sponsor. Today's episode, we're exploring the letters from the Titanic or letters from passengers who are on the Titanic. Last summer, I read a book by Hugh Brewster about the Titanic. It's called Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage. If you're interested in the Titanic and the people who are on board, I'd recommend the book. It's a really neat take into all of the different people who are on the ship. It gives a good understanding not just of the timeline that everything went down on the ship, but what people's lives were like before and after as well there was a quotation about this topic of the Titanic being the unsinkable subject and it's true it's a topic that has been revisited throughout the past 110 or so years since the Titanic sank and through all the books and movies and um, even podcasts that you hear on Titanic a lot of it revolves around the timeline of what went wrong in this disaster and so I thought for this podcast even though that, that is fascinating, that we look more at the firsthand accounts of people who are on the ship and get an understanding of just the different experiences of those on the Titanic. I don't have too many that go into the step-by-step um, moments that they were living um, in the disaster. We will get a little bit of that, but more just about their own experiences and who these people were. In many of the movies, we see the the class contrast of the first-class passengers and the third-class passengers. So that's something we'll talk about a little bit. The first-class passengers uh, had some very famous people, as we saw in the, the famous movie Titanic um, by James Cameron. Um, the unsinkable Molly Brown was on the ship. Um, John Jacob Astor IV was on the ship. Uh, the a family that founded Macy's, I'm actually blanking on his name, I think his name is Ismay, was on the ship as well. And at that time, the circles of wealth and influence of the people that were really at the top of society were very small. And so for those first class passengers, many of them knew each other, they were running in the same circles. Um, and then the third class passengers was entirely different. Most of them were Lebanese or Syrian immigrants. Um, there are also a few Bulgarians and Croatians in there as well. So looking at very different backgrounds um, and different um, socioeconomic levels as well. The first letter that we'll visit is from Wallace Hartley, and he was the band leader on the Titanic. And he's the one that, um, or one of the ones that you see in the movie of the Titanic, who continues to play as the ship is sinking And there are many accounts of the music that was played on the titanic Um, before it sank the um, band would play at the bottom of that um, the main stairway that's so um, classic that we all can kind of envision in our mind's eye that was a place where people would gather before meals after meals there was coffee that was served after the meals and then um, the, the band would play there but as the ship sank the band was on the top deck and they continued to play and help keep people calm while they knew that they were surely going to die um, in this disaster. So this line, uh, or this um, letter from Wallace Hartley is before he departs, we don't have any other written correspondence from him. It's very difficult to actually have any correspondence from the ship, which I can talk about in a little bit as well. Letter reads, just a line to say, we have got away all right. It's been a bit of a rush, but I am just getting a little settled. This is a fine ship, and there ought to to be plenty of money on her. I've missed coming home very much, and it would be nice to have seen you all, if only an hour or two, but I couldn't manage it. We have a fine band, and the boys seem very nice. I've had to buy some linen, and I sent my washing home today by post. I shall probably arrive home on the Sunday morning. We are due here on the Saturday. I'm glad Mother's foot is better, Wallace. And so um, he didn't make it home to the United States. Um, he was killed during the sinking of the Titanic on April fifteenth. His body was recovered a few weeks later. The uh, on on the ship there was actually some fascinating um, statistics. There were fifteen hundred seventeen people who died. And only 333 of those bodies were recovered. So one of those um, was Wallace's. And this letter is sold at auction for $185,969. So that also just gives you an understanding of how prized any correspondence that comes from the Titanic is. Okay, a couple more letters that are before the disaster. Um, the first one was from a young woman whose um, fiance was back in San Diego, California. And she had um, boarded the ship um, to come home and, and marry her beloved. So she was alone. She was in the second class passage. Um, she was a second class passenger and her name was Kate Buss. And I just have um, an excerpt from her letter. Um, the letter itself sold for about $35,000 um, it was 25,000 pounds she wrote i received yours on the vessel today have posted mother and mrs lingham from sherba or sherba i always mispronounce that i'll get it better <laughs> this i think will go out from queenstown tomorrow i've been all quite all right but now feel dead tired and more fit for bed than anything the first class apartments are really magnificent and unless you had seen them, you would think the second class were the same. We were due to reach Charbeau on at 5 p.m., but not there yet, although the mail is cleared. I think I'd best try and get some postcards of the vessel. My fellow passenger hasn't turned up yet, so if she is coming, it will be from Charba, or Queenstown. I was advised to eat well, so I had a good lunch. Two clergymen opposite me at the table. No sign of seasickness yet, Yet. I mustn't crow, must clear, and have a wash now. We'll pop this in the post in case I'm seasick tomorrow. So that was April 10th, five days before the Titanic sank. The um, town that I keep mispronouncing, it's in France, Cherbourg. I think that's how you say it. I'm, if you're listening, I'm sure you can actually say it better than I can. Uh, once the ship departed England, it went to the small town in France. The ship wasn't able to dock there, so the passengers were ferried out to the ship. At that point, John Jacob Astor IV and his young wife, Madeline, who was pregnant, I think she was five months pregnant, boarded. That was also where the unshakable Molly Brown boarded as well. And then, um, that was on April 10th. On April 11th, The ship arrived in what's now called Queenstown in Ireland, and it set sail on April 11th, around one twenty, and that was its last um, port before it went out to the Atlantic. One thing that's remarkable to me about the letters from the passengers on board is how unremarkable they seem. This seems like an account that I would give if I were on a ship. Just talking about the accommodations, hoping I don't get seasick, sending love to my family. When I think also about Wallace's letter, he's talking about lo- the logistics of seeing them next. He's talking about how um, it should be a good job. There should be good money on the ship. No one is anticipating that anything is going to befall them. And part of that, we've you know we've heard from. Other, I'm sure you've probably seen movies or read some books about the Titanic before, but it was really thought to be unsinkable. The way that the ship had been designed, it had special compartments that would hold air. Um, and basically, they figured if you could, I think, at three, if you hit three or four of them, the ship would be fine. But if you hit more than that, it could sink. There is speculation that if the ship hadn't actually tried to reverse the engines and tried to turn, if it just hit the iceberg head on, it probably wouldn't have sunk. When it turned, the iceberg scraped along the side of the ship, which then um, caught those compartments. There is also um, stories about the um, shifts, uh, there being a, a shift for the people who are piling the coal. And so some of the doors were open to those compartments when it normally would have been closed. So clearly no ship is unsinkable, but the ship well, it wasn't that crazy that they thought it would be unsinkable because there were so many things in place that should have protected the ship and it just happened that it was exactly the wrong place, exactly the wrong time um, where the iceberg had hit and when it hit. Okay. Okay. The next letter is still before the disaster. This was from a woman named Esther. Uh, Her husband, Benjamin, and her daughter, Ava, were traveling to Canada and they were going to start a new life in Canada. And I'm pretty sure they were second class class passengers as well. I'll put in the Instagram notes for this episode an image of this letter. It has um, the wife, Esther's handwriting. For most of the letter. And then at the very bottom, Ava has signed it, and so you'll hear what Ava wrote as well. Seeing their handwriting is very special. You do get a sense of the, the mom and the daughter um, and just how little Ava was. Um, that's something that also occurs to me when I'm learning about the Titanic, is that there were these just wide-eyed children who were put in this horrible, horrible situation, and it was Um, and some some points, people weren't panicked, they didn't think anything was going to happen, and then when it started to be clear it was a real disaster, Um, it was total chaos getting people into the lifeboats. I'll read the letter, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about Esther, Benjamin, and Ava. Dear ones all, as you see, it's Sunday afternoon, and we are resting in the library after luncheon. I was very bad all day yesterday could not eat or drink, and sick all the while, but today I have got over it. This morning, Ava and I went to church, and she was so pleased and sang, Our God, our help in ages past. That is her hymn she sang so nicely. So she sang out loudly. She's very bonnie. She has had a nice ball and a box of toffee, and a photo of this ship bought, um, bought her today, everybody takes notice of her through the teddy bear. There is to be a concert on board tomorrow night in aid of the sailor's home and she's going to sing, so am I. Well, the sailors say we have a wonderful passage up now. There has been no tempest, but God knows what it must be when there is one. This mighty expanse of water, no land in sight, the ship rolling from side to side is being wonderful, Though they say the ship does not roll on account of its size anyhow it rolls enough for me i shall never forget it it is very nice weather but awfully windy and cold they say we may get to new york tuesday night but we are really due early wednesday morning She'll right as soon as we get there this letter won't leave the ship but will remain and come back to england where she is due again on the 26th where you see the letter all of a screw is where she rolls and shakes my arm all, all a screw is where she rolls and shakes my arm i'm sending you on a menu to show you how we live i shall be looking forward to a line from somebody to cheer me up a bit i'm always shutting my eyes and i see everything as it as i left it i hope you are all quite well let this be an all around letter as i can't properly as i can't write properly to all till I can set my foot on shore again. We have met some nice people aboard, Lucy, and so it has been nice so far. But oh, how the long, long days and nights, it has been the longest break I have ever spent in my life. I must close now with our fondest lovings to all of you. From your loving S. And then in Ava's writing, heaps of love and kisses to all from Ava. So on the um, evening of the tragedy, Benjamin put his coat around Esther, his wife, and it was a um, warm sheepskin-lined coat. Ava made it into a lifeboat, and um, Benjamin told Ava that he should hold on to Esther's hand and be a good little girl. They never found Benjamin's body, but once um, Esther and Ava were rescued, Esther discovered in the pocket of Benjamin's coat that the letter she'd written there, uh, the letter she'd written had been kept there for safekeeping. One of the reasons why we don't have many letters from the Titanic is even if um, we were to find, let's say the the post room in the Titanic, any organic material has been totally removed from the ship by sea life. Uh, Even though it's very cold down there, They're little, I don't know if you'd call them microbes necessarily, but um, little things that will basically eat anything that was organic. So all the wooden banisters, anything that was organic would have been eaten. So papers, um, letters, even though they probably have a hard time soaking for that long, um, they didn't survive. And that's something I find kind of fascinating. Um, As many of you know, I come from Lake Tahoe, which has really deep cold water as well. And things can last for seemingly forever in Lake Tahoe but that's because we don't have the rich sea life that the ocean has and so um, with that even um, in Lake tahoe they're underwater forests you can see these um, large um, pine trees that I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of years old they are but they're perfectly preserved on the bottom of the lake um, and even when people go missing their their bodies are often preserved there was a scuba diver that went missing when I was a kid in the 90s and they found him a couple years ago and he he didn't look alive but he (laughs) looked pretty much like he did um, the day that he went in the water so the Titanic is definitely unique in that um, it's totally a part of the sea now and we all can just kind of imagine what it looks like with um, the barnacles on it and um, the other other parts of kind of sea life where it's just kind of dripping um, with the bottom of the ocean but all of the organic materials missing I even read accounts about the gilding in the boat um, so a lot of the um, parts of the ship had gold leaf on them and that also has come off and so you now see in those spaces that were so sparkly that you're seeing the under metal now and it's much duller I don't know if the gold was eaten as well, but um, for all the other pieces of organic material, those um, are, are no longer available, even if you are able to get down to the ship. Okay, so um, I wanted, again, this podcast not to be a lot about what happened on the ship and the timeline. There are really good resources if you are interested in that. And the Hugh Brewster book that I mentioned, Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage, it does a wonderful job of telling the story of the people and telling the timeline of the ship. So you just get this really rich account of what the experience was like. But just before we go into some of these letters um, that talk more kind of after the accident um, or or from people that um, died on the ship, I thought it would be help, uh, helpful just to talk a little bit about the, the tragedy itself. So one of the parts that we hear in the stories about the Titanic was how ill-equipped it was for a disaster. Even in that James Cameron movie when Rose says, oh, well, I've done the math and there aren't enough lifeboats. (laughs) That was true. The um, boat, um, the 20 lifeboats on the boat could only carry um, 1178 people, which was far short of the number of passengers. There were, I think, 2,200 people on board, 900 of those were crew or what they called souls um, at the time. And so even if they could fill the lifeboats to capacity, there was no way that they could have saved everyone on the ship. Um, In addition to the boat having, um, being launched below capacity for lifeboats, they didn't do a good job of loading the lifeboats. Uh, As an example, lifeboat number seven, which was the first to leave the Titanic held about 27 people and it had space for 65 and so this meant that only 705 people were rescued and there were some accounts about people in the lifeboats arguing about going back um, in pew brewster's book i learned some about that where they heard people in the water screaming for help they had survived getting off the ship but they were freezing to death and People on the lifeboats didn't want to go back. They were afraid that if they went back, the people who were basically clawing for their lives to get into boats would capsize the boat and kill everyone. And so um, it was a very traumatic time for everyone who was in that situation. And there was um, disagreement on the boats, too, about what should be done. But there was uh, you know, major uh, problem with having few too few boats to begin with, and then also um, a poor system where people weren't actually properly loaded in the boats. This next letter was recovered on the body of a victim from the Titanic. Um, It was found on the 13th. Um, It's from Alexander Oscar Horvason. He was a successful salesman who'd been on vacation with his wife um, in Buenos Aires. Um, his wife, Mrs. Horvelson, was rescued, but Mr. Horvelson pa- um, perished in, in the um, tragedy. The letter is the only letter that they know that was from um, on board an onboard victim that still made it to its recipient. The um, other letters that I've mentioned had um, it, it, well, as an example, either were sent before it left Ireland or were on someone's person that they took off the ship. This one was on his person, um, but it was still delivered to his wife, or to his mother um, once his body was recovered. He wrote, "Dear mother, we had good weather while we were in London. It is quite green and nice in England now. This boat is giant in size and fitted up like a palatial hotel. The food and music is excellent. And so far, we have had good weather. If all goes well, we will arrive in New York Wednesday AM. I'm sending you a postcard of the ship and also a book of postcards showing the inside. We have not had any news since we left New York January 6, so we do not know what has been going on since we left. Mate's sister was ill when we left, and had an operation performed out of New York. Mate had a letter from Mr. Barry at Buenos Aires, which stated that she was getting on fine, but had not heard anything since. We have been so far away that it has been hard to reach us with the mail. Mr. and Mrs. John Jacob Astor is on the ship. He looks like any other human being, even though he has millions of money. They sit out on the deck with the rest of us and are very democratic, well, I guess I will write more another time. So that was the whole letter. And again, this one is still before the, before the disaster. And it's just so remarkable to see how normal life was um, on the boat and that there wasn't much anticipation. there. Um, in the research I did, there were a few people that had a sense of foreboding. But from what I can tell, it seems like people that get on an airplane and have a sense of foreboding. There's some percentage of people that say, I knew it was going to be a bad flight, right? So um, it didn't seem like there was really any indication that this journey would be different. The, um, The notices that the ship received from other ships, though, should have given them pretty fair warning that not only did they need to slow down, but they really needed to watch for icebergs. There was a Um, notification, I forget, the initial ship that had sent the first notification, that first notification warned of icebergs closing in, and the Titanic totally ignored that notification. It didn't even make it to the bridge where decision-making was being made. The other notification came from the California, which was the ship that was actually closest to the Titanic, but the, um, I don't know if it was a communications person at the California, who exactly it was, but the person who had reached out to the Titanic was chastised from the Titanic for wasting their time or bothering them, basically. And then the California turned off their communications for the night, so they didn't receive the distress call from the Titanic. Had they received the distress call, they would have been close enough before um, to get there before the ship sank. Um, and so it's um, interesting when I'm just reading these letters where everything seems normal, there was also a sense of, oh, well, you don't necessarily need to pay attention to the notifications that are coming through. The ship is unsinkable. We'll just keep moving forward. There's a lot about um, John Jacob Astor IV, who was one of the richest men in the world at the time. He died on, um, well, he died uh, most likely in the water. They don't know exactly. Um, what happened to him. He is one of the people whose body was recovered. Um, I said there were 333 bodies that they did find, so he was one of those. Uh, he was in the news a lot leading up to this tragedy. As I mentioned, he's one of the richest men in the world. He had inherited, or he was the heir to the Astor fortune, so had grown up in a life of privilege, A couple years earlier, he divorced his wife, and then um, more recently, he had married his second wife, Madeline, who was only 18, and I think he was maybe 19 years older than she was, so um, it was definitely seen as a bit of a scandal, and she was pregnant. She made it off the ship. He lowered her onto the ship. Um, I think she was in lifeboat number four, and he remained on the ship and then um, passed away once it sank. Okay, and this one is from one of the more f- famous figures on the boat, um, as everyone calls her, the unsinkable Molly Brown. In her lifetime, she was never called Molly. She always went by Margaret. It was just after her death that she, res- um, that she received that sobriquet. Okay, so this is after the ship and they've made it, uh, after the ship sinks and they've made it safely to land. We, the lady passengers, wish to express to the captains and officers, doctors and crew of the Carpathia, Carpathia, our grateful appreciation of their tender kindness, courtesy, and generosity after a night of grief over the loss of fathers, husbands, sons, and brothers, who in their fine gallantry and chivalry sacrificed themselves to make our escape and rescue possible. To their memory, we can only make two-fitting tribute from the women survivors Margaret Brown Mrs. William Blanchett and Mrs. George W. Stone The period in, in which the the Titanic sank, so right before World War One, is often now remembered as a time that was quite peaceful, but there was actually a fair amount of social upheaval at this time. It was also leading up um, to women's suffrage. There was nearly a class um, civil war that was going to break out in England. And I think um, one of the interesting things when we read Molly Brown's letter, Margaret Brown's letter, is how she's talking about the gallantry and chivalry of men. There were debates about this following the um, sinking of the Titanic, not Molly Brown's letter in particular, but the fact that women and children were prioritized. Supposedly, that was actually a pretty new thing in history, that women and children would be saved over men. Um, But also, because of the women's suffrage movement gaining momentum, there were many critics who said, well, if these women want to be equal, why is it that they're getting on the lifeboats first? Uh, I don't know if anyone criticized um, Margaret Brown specifically, but that was a criticism at that time. Um, Margaret Brown is often remembered as being quite outspoken, um, and that would be outspoken as an American compared to a Brit, but also um, she was a woman who was open to speaking her mind um, and so would have been seen as outspoken um, even by the United States standards. And she was a suffragette as well. And so that's something that just occurs to me in this letter is that here was a woman who was quite progressive, and she sees the sacrifice that these men made in saving her lives and the other lives of women and children who were on the ship. Okay, this letter was written by Nellie Walcroft um, shortly after she arrived in New York City. She was a second-class passenger on the Titanic, and she made um, she obviously made it to safety. And this is the letter that from what my research was the one that described most of the tragedy day to day what or moment to moment what happened it's written to her friend clara she wrote my dearest clara just a line or two just to let you know we are quite safe after our terrible experience one would never have believed when you saw me off on that journey before a week was out what i should have what i should have to go through I'm so glad to say my cold is the only ill effect so far. So Clara, to see the magnificent ship like a floating palace go down in the sea was an awful spectacle. We had 70 feet to be let down in the boat and when we were going down, the the steerage passenger jumped into the boat and our officers, seeing our danger, jumped into the boat and shot the men to keep them from swamping us. And when, nearly to the bottom, the ropes letting the boat down refused to act and they had to cut the rope and we dropped. I thought that was my last minute. There there were 59 in our boat when we got well away from the ship and after the ship had gone down, you should have heard the cries of those poor men and women. I could never describe it. It seemed to last about two hours, that terrible cry of help. After the cries had, She crossed that out. After the ship had gone down, we had to change our boats to let our officer go back to rescue. And when we got into the boat, there were four dead men and a madman. I think they pushed him overboard. I never saw him again after rowing for seven hours. We got picked up by the Carpathia. We shouted for joy when we saw the ship. They took us up with ropes and gave us all neat brandy. There were 710 rescued, so that could not put us all. Uh, so could, so that could not put us all up. So we slept on our table on tables for five days. They were very kind to us indeed. In everywhere, the suffering was frightful, and we had 35 women who'd lost their husbands on board, and one can imagine the agony of these women, not knowing if their husbands were living or dead, or how glad we was to see New York. It was in a fever here, we were given some clothes directly when we came off. There was a steamer with a hundred coffins waiting for the dead, but most that died were buried at sea. The flashlights took our photo. I was so glad to meet Carl and his friend. They soon got a cab, and we were snapshotted away. There were 70,000 persons roped off in charge of the police. They were all so glad to see us, and the world's sympathy is ours in New York. But I shall never, never go on a floating palace again. Write to me soon, send me any recipes you have got there. With much love, your loving friend, Nell. And for the movies that I've seen, I've I've seen these scenes before, but it wasn't clear that that came from true stories to the image that she has of going down in the boat, being lowered by rope 70 feet, that must have been terrifying to begin with, then to have people jump on her boat and to have them be executed, and then to have to float out in the water and hear the death and be dark and cold and not have anything to do, and then people on the boat dying with her. It's pretty amazing to me that she had the presence of mind to be able to write this letter There's such clarity in the way that she describes the situation. And it's quite short also. It's um, amazing. It's as though she really edited it down into each crucial moment. I would love to know more about her experience before getting in the boat. What was she thinking? Um, Did she feel like it wasn't maybe going to be a disaster, that maybe it was just a false alarm? Or did she start to worry even before it got time for her to go into the boat. Okay. And the last letter is one that um, had prompted me to do this um, podcast episode. It was signed by, um, or written by Ben Tillett, who uh, who worked for the Dock Wharf Riverside and General Workers Union of Great Britain and Ireland. I'd mentioned that even though we often think of the period before World War I as being relatively peaceful, there was a major um, collision in in social class that was going on. Even the the Titanic was having a hard time getting enough coal to be able to launch because there was a coal strike that was happening in the United um, Kingdom. And that had started earlier that year in January the coal miners had been striking for minimum wages, and that caused a lot of complications in the shipping industry. And so um, part of that meant that a lot of ships were just docked. They, they couldn't afford the fuel to send them out. But also there were austerity measures taken by the major liners to, um, to reduce their, their coal intake or their costs. So the Olympic and Titanic, they were sister ships, were um, instructed to be dropped from 30 knots to 20 knots in order to save coal. And the um, coal strike had actually finished right before they set sail, uh, about four days earlier. It's, the strike ended on April 6th in 1912. Uh, challenge with that, though, that there wasn't going to be enough time to get the the newly mined coal to the docks before its voyage, um, and. It, they, in order to lift those um, speed limitations that had been placed on this, the Titanic, the White Star Lines, so or the line that oversaw the Titanic, was going to have to find coal from other ships. And so they um, basically took um, coal from other ships that were in Southampton um, and put those out of service so that they could use it for the Titanic. Uh, the other thing that this shortage of coal had done was that Um, It had caused problems um, in the supply chain of coal, so there weren't as many ships that people could sail on. It was obviously very coveted not only to sail on the Titanic, but there weren't a lot of ships that were crossing the Atlantic anyway. And so people were not only excited to be passengers, but also there were people lined up for jobs to work on the Titanic. And that probably wouldn't have been the case as much had it had. Um, there not been this prolonged coal strike right beforehand. I also came across a fascinating story about the White Star Line trying to end the, um, the coal strike with the national coal strike. Again, the, the, the owners of the White Star Line were worried that there wouldn't be enough coal to even maintain their ship. And so um, a bursar for the company, his name was um, George Frederick Bull traveled with his colleague, R McPherson, and they basically set out to steal coal from the striking miners at gunpoint. And you can actually look this up. George Bowles pistol has been saved and it's, um, I I think it's in a box that was on the Titanic. Um, It's it's in the original flare box actually from the Titanic and you can see an image of that. the gun was sold in the UK for about 200,000 pounds. So it's a pretty um, crucial artifact from the Titanic. Um, and it was um, one that allowed, um, I guess when they, when they held the the miners up at gunpoint, it allowed them to, to get coal that would be used for the voyage. And again, I, I don't know the, how all that fits together because the strike had ended by... April sixth, and the Titanic set off on April tenth. So I'm not sure if when they um, went there, if that actually helped end the strike, or if it was more of a way for them just to get additional coal for White Star Lines. The coal that they had used, um, that to to get to the capacity that the Titanic needed, had been taken from other ships that were in Southampton. Okay, so let's see. Here is Ben Tillett's letter. The executive of the Dock Wharf Riverside and General Workers Union hereby offers its sincere condolences to the bereaved relatives of the third-class passengers of the SS Titanic, whose tragic sinking we deplore. We also send our sincere regret to the relatives of the crew who were drowned. We also offer our strongest protest against the wanton and callous disregard of human life and and the vicious class antagonism shown in the practical forbidding of the saving of lives of the third-class passengers, the refusal to permit other than first-class passengers to be saved by boats, is, in our opinion, a disgrace to our common civilization. We therefore call upon the government and the Board of Trade to insist on um, provision of adequate life-saving appliances in boats, rafts, and belts, Which shall not be, which shall not provide means of safety, shall not only provide means of safety to the passengers, but to the whole members of the ship's staff. We express our regret, and that in order to save time and cost at the risk of life, shorter and quicker routes were insisted on, in spite of the knowledge of the presence of ice. We trust the saving of so many first-class passengers' lives will not deaden the solicitude of the government for the lives of those who belong to the wage earning classes and call upon the members of the Labor Party to force the government, the necessity of proper protection to the lives of all Mariners and all passengers, irrespective of class or grade. Signed for the Executive, Ben Tillett. There's a lot more around the class struggles and, and, the, the coal miner strike So if that's an area that you're interested, I definitely recommend doing more research there. But one thing I just that really drew me to this letter was that it was about the people's stories that we don't have, right? The people who weren't even permitted to go on the boats. Um, and many of them were not British or American. Again, they're Lebanese, Syrian, Bulgarians, Croatians. And so their stories and and lives were lost at sea. In a time that I often think of being so classist, and it clearly was quite classist, it's neat to read that it wasn't seen that way by everyone and that there really was a sense of the great tragedy of all the lives lost, not just... Of passengers. Um, so not just the third class passengers, but also the crew as well. Those are people whose people whose lives mattered too. And so I do find it inspiring that that um, was taken note and that there were additional precautions that came from this horrible disaster. I also was thinking about tragedy in our modern time and feeling like we have um, overcome this problem. But then when I think about the impact of the pandemic and COVID-19, it's still the people with the most money who are able to shield themselves from the, the risk and, and the dangers of the pandemic. And it's in some ways a little bit more hidden and it's not so immediate as happened on the Titanic where there were literally people dying <laughs> on the ship and not being permitted into the boats. Uh, but it, it, it's amazing to me that this problem still persists and it's something that we still are trying to figure out how to make sure that people of all care or all, all classes receive the care um, as he put it irrespective of class or grade um, and also too thinking about workers being at greatest risk in titanic in the pandemic seeing frontline workers being at the greatest risk often those lower paying jobs that are necessities are the people then that are put at the risk. So people, even not just healthcare professionals, but people who work in grocery stores, people who are still helping um, deliver our mail, um, food delivery, package delivery, all of that. uh, It's a problem that still exists um, and is is very much tied to someone's class um, or to their um, position that they work in. Okay, so I know these letters are a little bit different each one tells a slightly different story and we didn't go too much into what actually happened on the ship but I hope that you found it as interesting as I did just to hear some different voices and get exposure to the people who are on the ship of course I would love to hear your thoughts as well Um, if you have questions or things that you'd wish that I'd covered more in depth please message me I didn't prepare, obviously, a script for this podcast episode, but I have done a fair amount of research, and so there is a lot that I didn't mention in this episode, and there's a good chance if you have a question, it's probably something that I've read about, and I can either answer your question or direct you to the right resource. Um, I did use a variety of resources. Um, Some came from Britannica. Um, I also found um, this letter from Ben Tillett. There are multiple sources online that have that, so that's easy to find if you want it. The um, book that I recommended is called Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage, and that's by Hugh Brewster. I don't remember there being any letters in that book, but it's very rich storytelling about the people who are on the ship. And I don't have an appropriate sign-off for a tragedy like the pandemic, but I will just um, thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode.